Mark Knopfler, in your work leading the Luminosity Lab at Arizona State University, you drive big impact innovation. Can you share an example where your students brought your mantra, dreaming big, taking risks, and creating genius to life? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think right now we're in an unprecedented situation. You really view that as the reason the lab exists. And we've always existed with the goal of creating innovations that would impact society. And so throughout the pandemic, our lab has really geared itself towards producing innovations to help out. And so I think when the crisis first began, it was very clear that there was a shortage. Supply chain was backward in terms of getting masks and other PPE. And so one of the things our students did that was amazingly innovative was they created two novel sterilization systems that they've now patented. And these sterilizations systems, one's a vaporized hydrogen peroxide-based system, the other is an ozone-based system. But at the end of the day, what they do is they allow you to sterilize and reuse different PPE and especially the N95 masks. And that's what you see a lot of shortages in, whether you're a small business, whether you're a medical provider. It's been very difficult for them to get those. And those are also very hard to rapidly produce through 3D printing. And so while there might be some solutions that exist in the marketplace, they're extremely expensive and groups were finding it hard to get those. And so what our students did is they developed really cost-effective systems that you can make for one's 300 bucks, the other one's less than 60 bucks to make. And what's great about them is you can make them using all off-the-shelf components you could find at Home Depot. And so really the goal was here. They've now open sourced these designs. And the goal is that anyone could go out and build these systems and leverage them within their businesses, within schools, within hospitals and small clinics. Now, right now, we're also looking for a commercial partner. And once again, the idea is let's give a royalty free license and let's have someone who can take that out to market and produce it as cheap as possible, do so. And, and you know, what we found really is like the passion of the students isn't really about and none of it's about making money. I mean, really, innovation isn't about making money. It's about producing value for society. And creative genius and innovation and making an impact is what we'll be exploring in today's conversation. Welcome to the Knowledge Institute podcast, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. I'm Jeff Cavanaugh, head of the Emphasis Knowledge Institute, and today we're here with Mark Knopfel, director of the Luminosity Lab at Arizona State University. Mark is also director of the strategic projects at ASU, and he leads a lab of highly exceptional students called Luminosity. This lab is where interdisciplinary teams of students with bright ideas dream big. They launch moonshot ideas with the aim of positively impacting society, and they design, build, and deploy innovations to change the world. Mark is an Arizona native. He received his bachelor's degree in finance, master's in business analytics and systems engineering, and is currently pursuing a PhD in human systems engineering at Arizona State University. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You said you were fortunate have a dad who's an engineer at Motorola. How did you get started and what are some early influences that shaped your path? My dad was a huge early influence for me. He was an immigrant from Lebanon to the United States. I mean, this was the dream for him to be here. You could just tell, you know, even growing up for him, he saw the dawn of computing and was a big part of it and really loved that aspect. And so I was very lucky. I think maybe you see it more in society now, but at the time, I mean, maybe I was like four or five years old when I got a computer in my room. And so at a very young age, I was exposed to that. I would build computers with my dad and I got really interested in the software side of it. And so I remember in the third grade, I made my third grade teacher's class website. And so that exposure, I think, was really helpful. I mean, just absorb things when you're young. And it really got me into technology and also big companies. I mean, my dad loved working and he spent like 40 years in industry in engineering. And so I just really admired his work in that field. You worked for a big tech firm in Silicon Valley. What motivated the change of direction? 
Yeah, it's interesting. It was always my dream. That's what I wanted to do. Go to Silicon Valley, work for a big tech company. And I had a lot of fun for the short stint that I spent there. And it was not that there's anything wrong with big tech. I just think, you know, sometimes people think that that's every job you have in big tech is going to be super innovative. In some cases it is, um, but it really depends on the team you are on. I think at big companies in general, even tech companies, a lot of the individuals there, they're doing oftentimes somewhat uninteresting work, right? You're, you're asked to generate reports or maintain an existing system, write tests. There's value to that, but it's very different than um, starting a technology from scratch. I mean, very few people get to be on the initial team that designed the first iPhone. And so for me, when the opportunity came up at ASU, the ask was to build the Skunk Works lab of students that would really pursue these radical innovations to impact society. And that's what I wanted to do. The thought about being around youthful minds and really going through that full process from design to the develop to deploy. Very few of those opportunities exist today. And in this case, it was the chance to really design one from scratch and operate it. And, and that, to me, that was the biggest draw. Well, that was the draw. What's new and novel about Luminosity as a lab? It was interesting because the idea of it, when I came to the university system, I thought things like this would exist. And I guess over the years, I've been surprised that models like Luminosity aren't as prevalent. I think that the model is really three main things. I think first and foremost is we really flip the existing model on its head. And by the existing model, I really mean this like faculty-led model of research. I mean, that's the understanding in research universities is you have faculty experts. They'll form labs with graduate students. But I think that sometimes in certain cases, it can be stifling to innovation, mostly because it's like a very top-down approach. It's very clear the faculty is the expert, is the lead on the research. In a lot of the cases, it's the students that are doing the really innovative work and research, but they never really get the glory for that. And so what we've done in the lab is it's fully run by students. I mean, even me in my role, and essentially at the end of the day, I'm a facilitator. I'm also a student at the time pursuing my PhD. And we really just give the agency to the students to pursue projects that they're passionate about. And we tell them that they can do anything. And I think over the years, they realize that that's the case. I think the other thing about it is that it's truly interdisciplinary. I think a big thing about the lab is we pull students from all academic disciplines and all these students leverage their different viewpoints and skills on these projects. And I think at universities, there's a big push for interdisciplinary work. But I think what's different about this is a lot of the times at universities, when you do interdisciplinary work represented by maybe two labs coming together for coffee every once in a while and exchanging ideas. And that's totally different than having a fully integrated lab that works day to day. Or you have an interdisciplinary lab that resides in the university's design school and they're sitting there wondering why they can't engage engineers. And so we're lucky as a lab that we really get to sit within the ASU's umbrella organization for research. So it really allows us to draw in students. And at the end of the day, it's really not beholden to any dean of a certain school. It's people from all walks of the university. And I think what makes it special is the passion that those students have. It's very much this culture of people staying up all night, every night just to build things. And really, it does feel like a student told me the other day, it feels like play. They're not doing it because it's a student worker position or anything like that. The idea of being surrounded by these bright minds. They want to change the world and that they can come every night and then really tinker around with. There's not really a set expectation. It's not like a class with a grade. It's really the outcome is producing something of value. And it's really focused on the creation and development of tangible solutions rather than just research alone. You said there's no playbook for innovation. How do your students transfer their creative genius to innovating real solutions to global problems? 
I found that it's an organic process, that true innovation happens. I mean, for our students, we have these amazing, incredible individuals. And, and what we find is it's them sitting in a coffee shop. We had a couple of students sitting in a coffee shop one time, and they're reading articles on their computer for fun about power mafias in Beirut, Lebanon, and how there's such unstable power systems there. and People are running cords and, and charging for it. Really a ridiculous situation that shouldn't exist in, in the 21st century. And a couple months later, they've now designed microgrid technology, patented that that would be able to provide more stable energy solutions to third world countries. And really, it's it, those things. Another case of that is our robotics student who loves autonomous vehicles, having lunch with a female design student who's kind of explaining how she doesn't always feel safe crossing campus at night. And once again, there, that turned into this autonomous system of drones the students developed that facilitates a safety escort system. So it's really remarkable when you let people, when you just trust them to innovate and you put them in an environment where they're, they're talking through ideas. I think there's processes that help towards innovation, but it's not really school. Usually you're so used to getting step-by-step -step instructions. There's not going to be step-by-step -step instructions to the next big idea. You know, at the end of the day, it's the belief that you can innovate and really going after it. All right, let's dive right in to how this is applicable for a, a business leader. These are great stories. They're fun, feels like play. How do you set this up in every corporate department? I definitely think it's a scalable model. In terms of corporates, we've actually started a program through the lab where now huge corporate partners will come to us and engage our students in R&D work. And I think the draw there is really they're looking for that same model. You know, they're looking for new minds that are naive to kind of the day-to-day -day of the business operations that will come in with a, a fresh mindset. And we found that to be very successful when we've engaged our students. But I don't think it has to be student-specific. I think every company really could create this culture. I think really creating small groups that have a culture of they are actually on the cutting edge of driving value for the company. It's just a different mindset to be in. And I think you've seen companies do it. We were modeled after Skunk Works at a Lockheed Martin. And over the years, you've seen Google develop Google X Labs. And so many of these groups are finding this value in these small groups that are really culture-driven groups. I mean, people that really want to spend their time producing innovations. And so I think it's something that if, you know, if you're a company that doesn't have type of skunk works model, you should. And, and furthermore, I do think you should look towards the youth engaging with universities, finding those students. We found that they approach problems totally different and they really are coming to it with a relevant skill set. I mean, they're the most up-to-date. They've just grown up with all these new technologies and studied them. And so day one, they can make a value impact. Great voice of youth advocacy there. What about companies trying to do this though in a world of remote work. How is it different than everybody getting around the table or everyone getting in this conference room that you convert to a lab? What's it mean when let's say four of the six people are working from home and two of them are in some office? Quite honestly, I do think it becomes more difficult. Our lab has converted to fully remote. And in a lot of ways, we've become a lot more efficient. Some of our greatest successes have happened remotely. But I think it, where it becomes difficult is really trying to build that culture. A lot of why we've been successful is that group has already built that rapport with each other. And so even us, we're really trying to explore ways that we can continue to facilitate that remotely. And I think it is doable, really building these natural experiences. People are getting used to this idea of jumping on Zoom and having an ideation session that doesn't feel forced. And so I think that's really what it's going to take. I don't know. It's really engagements past just normal meetings, finding ways remotely. And even in the lab, we booted up, as silly as it sounds, a Minecraft server for our students to really just get in and build things together and socialize as a way to just keep up that rapport. And so I really do think it'll take new ways of really thinking through social dynamics to be able to build that culture that I think is necessary for innovation. So one more plug for Minecraft. All right. It is funny. 
how you can take something that's a common cultural, social touch point, and you can rally around that. And then from that, all kinds of interesting things spin out because you come together for some other purpose. You challenge people to go out and form their own communities of action-oriented problem solvers. How important is the group dynamic, even in a world of remote work, to create innovation? I think it's absolutely necessary. I mean, I think you've rarely seen in history things that are built in silo. And I think even if an individual does create an innovation, really, they're they're standing on shoulders of giants and existing work that exists. And so for us, it's, it's really the social dynamic that allows you to create innovation, especially today. So many innovations have been developed. And now for novel ideas to come about, you have to have different viewpoints. You have to have people that have different experiences and different subject expertise come together and really merge those in new ways. And, and for us in the lab, that's really most of every innovation we've seen is a creative writer student coming together with psychologists coming together with a designer and engineer and really pulling from those fields to really identify something that no individual had, had come up with before. Amazon has the now famous two pizza rule where every internal team should be small enough so that it could be fed with two pizzas. Now, granted, some of us have bigger appetites than others. In your experience, is there an optimum group size for innovation and what have you found? Yeah, I have heard of that rule and, and I agree with you. I think two pizzas would feed maybe five of our students <laughs> hungry appetites. But I do think there is an optimum group size. It's really how you structure things. The lab, Luminosity has changed over the years. We started with about 15 students and have gone up on engaging over just slightly over 100 students. And I think there was a difference in the dynamic. When you have 15 students, there's just such a close knit group of people that actually know each other. You kind of have to know everyone and work together. I recently went to a wedding of one of the students from that initial year, and all 15 people were at that wedding. And so you could really tell on the impact it had, not just on the work, but on the social dynamic. And so I think 30 is really probably the number I've personally seen in terms of after that, it, it becomes hard to facilitate this environment where everyone knows each other and there's um, really efficient kind of touch points between everyone involved. But like I said, we've scaled the lab, but I think the way we've done it is really scaling it in different locations. And so we've developed Luminosity Labs at ASU at our Polytechnic campus at our downtown campus. We launched an initiative in DC and then we maintain our one in Tempe. And what that's allowed us to do is really have these pockets of groups of you know 15 to 30 students working together where they can have that close-knit community. But then we've tapped them into this consortium, this network of talent that's been really helpful uh, and that everyone's really benefited from. So I think companies really can get creative on how they structure things. I do think it's important to build cultures in smaller groups and get that dynamic and then scale out your network. All right. I'm glad you added that because I was about to get after you and say, what do you mean 30 at a time? Nobody can eat the pizza then. It was interesting that you mentioned that even though you grew, you found natural ways to maintain that small team size. And it likens the fact the pods and these agile teams in terms of the group dynamic, how important are agile ways of working to Luminosity's innovation? It's really important for us. I mean, ever since the lab started, we've used agile methodologies for project management, such as Scrum. You know, I think those are important because just the structure of it alone, you know, doing these two-week sprints of incremental development, having those daily stand-ups. And in my opinion, it makes everyone in the group feel part of the full process. Every step along the way, you're involved in the design and the validation and the development. And it's unrealistic to expect that scope doesn't change on projects. And so really having this flexible approach allows not only the scope to change, but the 
students, the people involved to be part of that. And for us in particular, I mean, one of the challenges we have as a lab is the fact that we have students who graduate and new students who come in. There's a lot of transition. So I think by having the agile approach, it's actually a lot easier for us to maintain very complex projects year over year with different sets of students and have that continuity. Once again, you are listening to the Knowledge Institute, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. We are here with Mark Knopfel, Director of Strategic Projects at ASU and leader of the Luminosity Lab. Mark, as you think about bigger questions here, what are the most urgent global problems we face today? And in your experience, how are these defining the problems of the model? This might sound cliche, but I, I do think the biggest global problem is education in terms of having a solution for it, because I think it will inform everything that comes later. I mean, we will have so many challenges to face around security and defense and sustainability and energy and all, all these topics I think people are familiar with. And health, you look at what's going on today with the current crisis. It's my belief, obviously, I'm an internal optimist that people can do anything regardless of age, and, and they'll be able to find solutions. And for me, it's just important that everyone really pursues an education. And I'm not saying that has to be through a university. I think there's no excuse today. There's so many ways to learn online, so many resources in a way that's free and equitable. And for me, it's it's not that I, I, you know, my undergrad was not in engineering. I studied finance and political science and went more technical later. I do think these 21st century challenges do need a certain degree of knowledge in STEM fields to solve. But I, I'm not someone that says you need to go and just learn STEM. I believe more in the holistic education. Everyone should have a foundation of some STEM field, whether it's analytics or engineering, and really view that as their toolkit to be able to solve problems. And then in addition to that, they should be able to pursue biology or history or any topic they want to augment that. I guess I'm still surprised that our university systems and education whole kind of tells you you have to be you know, your one thing you spend four years studying this one thing for the most part. But I do think if we are able to educate the global population more holistically, I don't think there's a challenge that's coming tomorrow that we won't be able to tackle. Well, paraphrasing Churchill, people will always do the right thing after exhausting every other option. And you mentioned uh, political science as undergraduate, and I want to quickly touch on this. You had some experience working with political parties. And what is it, that applying your innovator's hat, that the advice you'd give to political leaders to get more stuff done? And whether it's between countries or between states or between parties, how can you apply lessons of innovation to political progress? Actually, real progress through political means. <laughs> you bring up such a good point. I think it's a point of, of frustration for me. I think what's needed in this space is really for the general population to really find a love. And I, you would originally say, I, th I think science, but it's interesting today that, that even the word science is controversial or politicized. And so rather than science, I think a general love for innovation throughout society would actually go a long way. I think the term innovation, the idea of innovation is that something that everyone can get behind, both political parties, every single person. And I think it's something that just the people need to demand in elections. What's disappointing for me is you just seldom see the topic of innovation be brought up. There's so many of these issues that come up year after year, and the solutions are seldom. Let's get a team of brilliant engineers and designers to solve them. And so I do think in terms of when it comes to election, getting people who value innovation, who value talent, who value you know 21st century solutions, I think that is the way of the future. And, and really having elected officials who surround themselves with people that can get things like that done. Got it. Well, maybe to give business leaders as well as political leaders some advice, what's the process by which the Luminosity Lab tackles problems and gets things done? Who decides which problems to address and what's the framework to deliver them? 
Yeah, it's interesting. We allow our students to actually pick all the problems they want to address. So they'll go through a process of identifying unmet need in society. And a lot of that, like I said, is organic. They'll have a session once a week where a student will guide them through current topics. We'll, we'll kind of do some research on, on what are some challenges. At least in our pipeline, we have a stage gate process um, that the students kind of have to go through until they can charter a project. And early on, it's really a natural process of finding an idea that resonates with people. And then they'll go through ideation. And sometimes that lasts weeks, sometimes that has months. So ideation and conceptual design of what potential solution spaces might look like. And we found that sometimes those ideation sessions, no one's required to go to those. And so sometimes they'll fizzle out and sometimes they'll have 20 students actively engaged week after week. And so we found that the ideas that the students really can get behind is where the passion is. And those tend to be really interesting challenges. All I do is just make sure that that fits within the scope of the lab, which is for us is like, we're on pursuit of big ideas. We're not really looking to build mobile app to facilitate gambling or something like that. I mean, we're looking for those big moonshots in, in the areas of education and healthcare. And so once they have that, we actually have the students, they'll go through a chartering process. They'll put together while we run agile methodologies, once we start a project, I mean, my background is systems engineering. So we actually do a lot of upfront research and simulation and diagramming. And so they'll plan it upfront. They'll indicate how much they need in terms of resources and what they need in terms of personnel. And by personnel, I mean students. And so if there's a certain skill set we don't have in the lab, we'll go out and recruit that skill set to augment the team. And then once we charter the project, they're off to the races in terms of development. And so once again, we run Scrum in two-week increments of development. And so it's really an iterative process of how they uh, develop these technologies. And then I would say at the end of maybe a monthly period, we kind of do a review to make sure that the project's on track. And we allow the students really to kind of govern those and decide if a project should get killed or continue on. And I think that's the reality of native workspace. You can't pursue everything and continue to pursue everything. A lot of the times you'll come to a point where it no longer makes sense. And I think our students have really been wise in, in knowing when that's the case, pivoting along the way. This is a tech discussion at some level. It'd be remiss if I didn't ask the question, how do you see technologies such as artificial intelligence, blockchain, virtual reality, fitting into these creative solutions for the big problems? I think AI is probably will continue to be one of the biggest tools for solving you know, challenges that come before us. You know, I'm a little biased. That's my background's in machine learning, but it's just such an incredible tool to be able to find patterns in existing systems and then be able to leverage those patterns to produce solutions. And that's all with the caveat is like some people have an unrealistic expectation of AI and what it can do. And I think there will be a lot of things in the future that are automated, but you can't automate everything. And all these systems that you build, they're as good as the humans that train the systems and gather the training set of data. And it's not an easy process. And so I do think there's many more innovations to come, but I do think we need to make sure that people are continuing to educate themselves on AI and, and how to leverage it appropriately to, to solve these challenges. Blockchain's another one I think came about kind of when I was starting the lab was when that got big. And I, I don't think it's really cryptocurrencies. I mean, that's obviously a big topic, but I think it's the general kind of design of blockchain that's really intriguing. And what that means for just equality for folks, you know, I look forward to a day where you have these social media platforms that aren't controlled by a single entity. Your data is not owned by anyone. It's, and so all the cool ways and unique ways that blockchain can be used, I think will really play a big in the future. 
And then I think VR and AR are probably the somewhat untested ones. I love virtual reality. I had the first developer kit for the Oculus. It's just those, I think they're still trying to figure out through the design and the usability of those systems. Probably augmented reality has the brighter future, but it's exciting in the lab to see just our students. These are the topics we say, okay, find a solution, leverage AI and virtual reality and see what you come up with. We've hosted a lot of hackathons throughout the university. And, and that's what I want to see happen at scale, even if it's virtual, especially during times of pandemic, people coming together around these challenges where they're forced to leverage these skill sets to come up with something new. You're across the table from an executive and they're asking you, how do I set up either a lab or an innovation capability at my company and my unit? What advice do you give them? I think the biggest piece of advice is it's really who you select to participate in those. I started the lab when I was 24 years old. I was picked by the president of the university to do that. I don't know if I knew at the time why I was chosen for that. It's really a unnatural thing for someone my age to be a director of a, of a research lab, especially without the PhD. And I think Dr. Crow's insight was that I kind of knew the right people at the institution. I mean, I had been student by president, been very active on campus. And I think it's a certain type of person that thrives in this environment. And it's not even based on their academic talent. It's really based on their passion for learning. And that's why we'll recruit freshmen. I think that's a big thing about this is like, if you try to get just senior members or people with experience, I think you'll always be limited. I think what's more important than experience is people's willingness to learn. And so for us, the, the most successful people in the lab have been the ones that come in and they'll learn anything. They'll stay up all night. I mean, this is really all encompassing for them. And I think if you can focus on building that group and that culture and focus the group on value creation, it will have long-term success. Even now, and it's like a highly uncertain environment for everyone you know, during the pandemic. So even I have worried about the future of the lab, but the two things, it's like we focus on value creation. We're successful in doing that. And we have a tremendous group of very talented and creative people. And I think if you have those two things, you can weather any storm. Now the question is, you're having a coffee with a young person who's about to go into college or is a student. What advice do you give them for broad definition of success and also to make sure they're making an impact? I would say take the opportunity to learn as much as you can and don't allow, I mean, I tell the students all the time, you know, they're all at the university. It's not enough to just go through your coursework. You really have to extend past that. You have to learn what's out there and you have to engage yourself on applied projects to really achieve that uh, applied skill set that will allow them to be impactful in the 21st century. And really it's important to never stop learning. I think a lot of people, once they finish college or their early years, it's like, that's all they'll learn and they'll find a job that pays well and gives them increases year after year. But but if you want to be in a position to really make an impact, it's really you have to have this yearning for that lifelong learning and really surround yourself both with like right colleagues, people that push you and drive you. But it, I think it's also important to have mentors. That's the one thing I've seen with the youth that I've worked with. A lot of them don't reach out to people and ask them to be their mentors. And they don't realize what a flattering thing that is to people. I, you know, I think for anyone, person like yourself, when if someone asks you that, it's really an honor. So I'm always encouraging young people to really reach out to people, inspire them and ask them to mentor them, you know, personally and one-on-one. One. What has been a major influence on you? Books, people, what are some ones that have really stood out and that you'd recommend? In terms of people, obviously I mentioned my dad, but I think one of the best things my dad did for me, like I said, he was an immigrant. He didn't have too many role models, but the one person he looked up to growing up uh, that I took after, I was actually Dr. Crow, so the president of Arizona State University. And so he used to take me every year, Motorola would buy a table at the ESU's Founders Day and President Crow would give a speech. And so instead of taking my mom, my dad would take me. 
uh, specifically to watch Dr. Crow speak. And I think what I learned from that and what my dad was trying to get at is Dr. Crow's always had an incredible vision for what he's wanted to accomplish using the university. And it's been a consistent vision. Obviously, it's evolved, but he's been able to execute on that vision since, I mean, we're talking since I was maybe in middle school watching this. And so, A, it's been incredible to see him really help, you know, realize the vision over the years, but it's really taught me the importance of having a vision in life and, and working towards that throughout your life. And he's been great in terms of just, you know, I've had the chance to work with him directly and he's really informed what I studied at ASU. And then I would be remiss to say, you know, the second person who's been a great influence is my former boss, Seth Raman and Panchanathan. We call him Ponch for short. He actually just left to become the director of the National Science Foundation, which is an incredible opportunity. But I had, since the lab started until a few weeks ago, he was who I reported to directly. And he just brings so much passion to what he does and really taught me that you can manage with love and, and how effective that, that can be. And I think just being an Indian American you know, immigrant now running the National Science Foundation, I think it's inspiring to all people. Such a need, someone that's first generation is really proof that you can achieve anything in life and there really are no more limitations. Well put. I do have to ask you, any books that capture your attention you'd like to share? For the audience, if you're interested in this kind of work, one of the books that I really designed the lab around is called Organizing Genius. And the book is all about these small groups of people that come together throughout society to do something amazing. And it's not always like technical things. So it's the Manhattan Project or it's Skunk Works or it's Bill Clinton's first election. I mean, it's all these groups of people where it was a small team that came out of nowhere. And it really speaks to the type of culture and environment that really is conducive uh, to that. And so that was a book I read really as I was designing the lab that first year. And it was really interesting to me. I think a lot of the insights from that book have really remained true. And it's a big reason I was able to really put together a team that's had the longevity that it's had. So I think that's definitely what I would recommend if innovation is the topic you're interested in and, and forming really great teams. What online resources do you recommend and how can people find you online? Resources. I mean, obviously, there's so many ones for learning, Coursera, et cetera. What I love is a site called Kaggle. Like I said, I studied data science, and Kaggle is really interesting because it hosts large data sets from companies and it allows people to compete around predictive analytics. And so much of what I learned was really just by doing. You know, I'm a big proponent of that. And I think things to look to actually, the lab are launching two web platforms this year. One in September, it's going to be called MindSpark. It's very similar to Kaggle, but it hosts competitions of all types, whether it's design or engineering or data science. And it really is efficient at bringing teams of people together from all walks of life to be able to engage on these projects that are sponsored by corporate partners. And then in addition to that, we'll launch a platform later in the year called Axio, which is really a learning platform that's embedded with an AI chatbot. The idea would be is you use it throughout your life and this AI learns about you and, and uses that knowledge to really personalize your learning and check in on you and give you these dynamic experiences depending on what's happening. And so we'll post some resources about that. And then in terms of finding me online, it's funny, I don't do so much of the social media anymore. I guess LinkedIn is the one I would suggest. And uh, I guess the Twitter handle is at Mark Knopf. But once again, I haven't posted. I think my wife is going to kill me because we're celebrating our, our one-year anniversary this week. I still haven't posted wedding photos. So I've been avoiding most social media, but I would love to connect on LinkedIn. And everyone, you can find details on our show notes and transcripts at emphasis.com forward slash IKI in our podcast section for, for all the things that Mark and I have discussed. Mark, thank you for your time and a highly interesting discussion. Thank you. Everyone, you've been listening to the Knowledge Institute, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. Thanks to our producer, Catherine Burnett, Carrie Taylor, and the entire Knowledge Institute team. Until next time, 
keep learning and keep sharing.